0: everyone, welcome into another edition of the WojPod. Here with Joe Harris of the Brooklyn Nets, who's having uh, his best NBA season on what has been, I think, the most fascinating team in the league this year, and, and a team in Brooklyn that's certainly going to compete for an NBA championship. But Joe Harris averaging career highs and points per game, field goal percentage, three-point field goal percentage. And how about this stat? More than 150 players have attempted at least 103 pointers this season. Only one player is making 50% of those looks, and that's our guest here, Joe Harris. Joe, how are you doing, man?
1: Doing well. Thanks for having me,
0: Woj. No, absolutely. And Joe, this this season for you and for this team, there's just been all these variations of this team. It was, it was Kevin and Kyrie to start, and then James Harden comes in, and you guys are headed back to Houston uh, now to play the Rockets tomorrow. Let me start here, Joe. The impact— that James Harden has had on your team and on you. There's this chemistry. Everybody around your place talks about it. You can see it when you play. I mean, he is looking for you. He finds you all over the court. If you get yourself free and come off and fight through a screen and he's going to find you, it just seems like you two have clicked, especially as much as anybody he has with, with this team.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, first and foremost, James is just an incredible basketball player. Um, I think the one thing that's pretty underrated in his game is his ability to pass the ball. Um, he's by far the best passer that I've ever played with. And just like you mentioned, um, if you even get a sliver of space, um, you know, the defense might relax, whatever it might be, the ball is coming your way. Um, and, uh, you know, to have, you know, play with somebody that he, he really reminds me a lot of playing with, with D'Angelo. Um, you know, D'Lo was an unbelievable passer when he was in Brooklyn, just being able to control the game, facilitate. But James, just you know, I think because people are so uh, worried about him offensively and his ability to score, you know, he can, uh, you know, he 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 sort of lulls people to sleep uh, every now and then. You know, if he's you know, there's been a number of times this season where he might have the ball in the high quad, and you're thinking that he's going to be, you know getting into a step back or trying to attack the rim and he's kind of lulling the defense to sleep ball comes, you know, (laughs) almost instantly right to your hands in the corner or wherever you might be. And it makes my job easy because I know that if the ball is coming my way more often than not, you know, I have room and rhythm and you know, I got to be aggressive taking those shots.
0: You know, the trade happens, Joe, and you have Mike D'Antoni on your coaching staff who uh, coached him in Houston. And I think even opened up the game, you know, really, I think opened up James's playmate, even more of his playmaking abilities with his style there. Did Mike D'Antoni tell you in that interim time from the trade happens until he shows up, was Mike saying to you at that point, hey, you're going to really like playing with him. He's going to be great for you. Were there any of those conversations when you were preparing to figure it out?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Mike, um, as everything was sort of unfolding, you know, that was one of the first things he did. He came over to me and said, you're going to love him. You're going to love playing with him. He makes the game so much easier for, easy for everybody on the court, but particularly shooters and guys that he likes trying to find or know that are going to be aggressive taking shots. So he just told me to continue, you know, the aggressive mindset that I had had prior to James, but to continue it on because he said, you know, if he knows that you're going to be aggressive taking shots, he's going to find you.
0: The impact James has had, I think, on putting Kyrie off the ball and, you know, you haven't played a lot of games with – All three with Kevin Durant, with Kyrie Irving, James Harden, for a variety of of reasons. But the impact he's had in the locker room on the team has been what, even maybe beyond his playmaking on the floor?
1: Yeah. I mean, James is is such a smart player, too, where, um, you know, he's continually putting guys in different spots where it's a position for everybody to to have success, not just for him, Um, you know, because he's trying to win games. Um, And you see it continually where he could come out and, you know, try and score 40 points every night and he could probably get close to it and do it, but he's facilitating, he's getting guys involved. He's, uh, you know, trying to get other guys going early on. And then he can take over late in the game. I mean, even last night in San Antonio, I think in the first quarter, you know, he, he had like a free throw and maybe a three, but he had like four rebounds, six assists. He's just controlling the sort of the pace of the game. Um, and really just sort of dictating what's going on. And he does that you know, night in and night out, but he's kind of cerebrally doing it where he's communicating with guys over the course of the game um, and getting guys in the spots where we're best positioned to have success.
0: You know, Joe, your game's evolved in a way, I think early in your career it was, okay, Joe Harris it will be a catch-and-shoot guy. First it was, can Joe Harris even play in the NBA? That, like that was the first question. You know, you get picked 33rd in the draft. You have injuries, you get traded and then waived by Orlando before Brooklyn signs you. And it always felt like when you got to Brooklyn, Kenny Atkinson started to add things. You you know, you weren't as much of a finisher at the rim early and you worked on it, worked on it. Then you were more than catch and shoot. How has that evolved for you in the league? You kind of taken more on as your game has grown.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think early on, um, you know, you're just trying to solidify a niche in this league. Um, and for me, you know, obviously it still is to this day, but my my best strength and what has gotten me to this point is my ability to shoot the ball. Um, but you know, you can't, you can't be limited. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, my game has really transformed a lot between, um, then and now where, you know, I'm still not, you know, breaking guys down off the dribble, handling the ball a ton. You know, I definitely stick more to my strengths, but, I think I've just sort of improved in different areas, like you like you mentioned the finishing aspect of it, where guys are going to run you off the line, and you got to be able to you know make reads and decisions from there. And you know I take a lot of pride in in, in making the right read, the right decision, where I'm opportunistic when I'm finishing. Um, and It allows me to be you know an efficient finisher, and then you know not turning the ball over if I'm trying to make a decision um, while driving. So uh, I think a lot of that though goes back to like you mentioned with with Kenny where. You know, he he kind of was, you know, early on talking to me about guys that he had coached in the past where he saw similarities, you know, like a Kyle Korver, different shooters that he had seen. But he said, I think you can be more than that. I think you can, uh, you know, help us in other areas. And I say, he said, you shouldn't just limit yourself to just being this specific. He said, you got to be able to open up your game um, in, in other facets. And, you know, it was one of those things with, between him assistant coach that we have now, Jordan Ott, who's still still with us and has been with the Nets in my entire tenure here, really just sort of pinpointing those different areas to try and focus on each offseason and then just applying it um, over the course of the year. But a lot of it is just, you know, simplifying the game, making sure you're making the right read and reaction to what's going on.
0: Joe, I, I asked our draft analyst at ESPN, Mike Schmitz, about your growth as a player and the impact that it might have on how other teams view players who might be of similar size, uh, similar ilk, and uh, not just who are in the league now, but but guys who now are uh, – teams are evaluating in the draft. Here's Mike Schmitz.
2: No question. You know, guys who can shoot the ball at a high level, uh, who can think the game quickly, and who bring – defensive toughness and a maturity they're highly coveted in in today's nba you know i I look at a guy like Corey kispert at gonzaga i'm not sure he would have been a projected top 10 pick before joe harris and i think scouts see a lot of joe harris in him you know a guy who's 6'6 6'7 physical uh, knows how to defend off the ball and is a lethal shot maker and then you look at guys who aren't even as accomplished As a Kispert or a Harris, you know, like a a Garrison Matthews or or a Max Struess um, in in Miami. Like if you have size shooting and some toughness, you're going to get a lot of bites at the apple to make it in the NBA. And I think a lot of that is because of Joe Harris.
0: Joe, after we recorded that segment with Mike Schmitz, he actually was kicking himself. Uh, There was another player that he wished he had included in there. And that's Desmond Bain, who's a rookie in Memphis. But when you hear Mike talk and kind of put your development in the league and your growth in Brooklyn into some context beyond yourself, how it's impacted other young players who are in the league now and and maybe particularly a potential lottery pick, Corey Kisper at Gonzaga. How do you react to it?
1: You know, I, well, first of all, I, I would have never thought that I'd be in this sort of position. But I think you know when I was coming out and even just you know you talk with different various coaches, your agent. There's always people that you're trying to emulate that have had success in the league. So, you know, for me to be in this position now, um, you know, I I guess there is a level of understanding of why there would be, you know, people are trying to draw and find similarities. You know, we're playing on a good team. Um, I'm having an impactful role in helping um, a team have success. Um, And I think you just look at how the, the game has transitioned, though, too. You know, there's so much more of an emphasis on on spacing, guys being able to shoot, um, make winning plays, not be liabilities in certain areas where you know you're you're playing winning basketball, you're doing the little stuff, uh, you're not turning the ball over, you're not a liability defensively, and then there's a value obviously in that. And I think um, you know, for players that are coming up, like somebody like Corey uh, Kispert, who I actually know and have have worked out with in the past, just because of our connection in the Northwest, but. You know, there's other players that are that are similar to him as well that you know are going to be able to find an opportunity to, to ha- have a chance to play in this league because of, you know, the things that are that are definitely not undervalued now. I, I wouldn't even say necessarily they're undervalued beforehand, but maybe just a little bit more overlooked. And the game is obviously transitioned to a point now where. You know, there's such an emphasis on being able to defend, have that level of toughness, but then also offensively just being able to space the floor and knock down shots. Joe, when you
0: think about free agency for you this well, was this fall? Was it wasn't really summer? When Mark Bartles, Senior agent calls you and says, Here's the offer, here's what we've gotten Brooklyn to four years, $75 million and you're thinking about being waived for your second year in Brooklyn or after your first year in Brooklyn, are they even going to pick up the option on my contract? That was touch and go. When he hits you and says, this is the deal we have, Do you want me to push for more?
1: Do you want to take it? You thought what? I mean, I was (laughs) telling him to take it um, at that point. Um, And part of it too is that I just, uh, you know, the level of familiarity, um, comfortability with Brooklyn. You know, obviously I've been here from the time that Sean has been here and a number of other people that are on the staff. Uh, You know, they they know what I'm about. They know, you know, where my value is. You know, sometimes it's different. I mean, obviously, you know, you get a, a deal offered by a separate team. And there's certain people within the organization that obviously see the, see the value in you, but people are so unfamiliar with you when you come in and you have to really reintroduce yourself. People have to understand, you know, what you're all about and a place like Brooklyn where I have this familiarity with so many people from, from the top down, um, you know, it, it just is a comfortable decision for me where I didn't, I didn't necessarily have to change up a, a lot in, in, in my thinking, um, You know, I knew that Brooklyn was the place I wanted to be from the beginning anyways. Um, And I think it it just it it makes it a lot easier when when people know what you're about, what you bring to the table, and where you bring value. Joe, when you get drafted
0: into the league and you go to Cleveland, they hire David Blatt as coach. And then all of a sudden free agency comes and here comes LeBron James in. They make the trade. Kevin Love comes in. What is it? initially, where you start to figure out how I'm going to fit into the NBA, how I'm going to find a role, where can I have my greatest value? You've shown that now. And this team around great players, a knockdown shooter, a guy who can defend his position, who can you know, handle a bunch of different roles. What was it like walking into the NBA with LeBron James on your team and, and seeing the league through the eyes of, how he approached the game, how he dominated the game, and then how do I fit into all of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was obviously uh, an incredible experience, really unique. Just, you know, my first year coming in, being a part of a championship team um, with one of the best players to ever played the game uh, and a super veteran-clad team as well. So I came in um, and I was only rookie on the team. Uh, you know, the other young guys – I guess by young standards was Kyrie and Tristan on that team. And then everybody else was, you know, nine, 10 year plus veterans. And, you know, I came in, you know, not assuming that I was going to be, you know, ha- have minutes or this or that. I knew kind of where, where I stood. And I was really just trying to learn and, and figure out how I could solidify um, a role in this league. Cause I even remember talking with Mark, my agent about it, uh, you know, really after everything kind of went down when LeBron decided that he was coming back to Cleveland. And, you know, he was talking about how it's great, great that we made it great that you got drafted in this position, but he said, it's one thing to make it. It's another thing to stick. So you got to have to figure out how, you know, we can make that happen, um, especially with with the team and the guys that you have around you. And, you know, we talked about gravitating towards guys like Mike Miller, James Jones, guys ahead, you know, I, I kind of saw in myself a little bit where, you know, their specialty was shooting and they had had long NBA careers, um, you know, being the guys that had did all the little stuff, uh, the, all the intangibles, the different leaderships uh, aspect in the locker room. And, you know, I just try to try to gravitate towards those guys um, in my first year in Cleveland. And even though I didn't necessarily play a lot, um, I think a lot of the stuff that I took um, just being around them sort of just on the sidelines, watching, uh, learning. I took that with me when I when I had another opportunity in Brooklyn and was able to apply it. Joe, when you guys came into Brooklyn, it was like
0: there were a bunch of reclamation projects uh, with Kenny Atkinson. Sean Marks comes in. They don't have draft picks. It's certainly not a free agent destination yet. And, you know, he kind of methodically built a cornerstone, an infrastructure of players. You know, Spencer Dinwiddie, you know, a similar you know, drafted a little higher than you, but but given up on. And he comes in, you come in. D'Angelo Russell comes from the Lakers, you know, kind of beat up a little bit from those first couple of years there. What was the environment like initially in Brooklyn when you guys all came together and then you've got this front office who's giving you like performance staff and how are you going to recreate your body? How are you going to, and a head coach who's very, you know had built his reputation on player development getting guys better what was that environment like from day one i mean
1: the environment was exactly what you touched on i think they were you know sort of trying to solidify all these sort of foundational pillars for the organization where there was an emphasis on skill development growing the young players that they had there was emphasis on uh the performance side of stuff guys learning how to take care of their bodies making it a daily ritual, um, a habit that you didn't have to worry about. Um, there was a lot of structure in place for all of us. And, um, for most of us coming into it, we weren't really necessarily used to that. It was just, we all came from different organizations where, um, you know, my situation in particular, you know, I can't really speak on the other guys, but my situation in particular, I I didn't really have, um, you know, a ton of structure like that when I was in Cleveland, you know, a lot of what was there was like, these guys were real independent they kind of figured it out on their own. Um, they didn't need guys kind of taking them aside, doing this, doing that. And like I mentioned, you know, trying to follow, follow around Mike and James J- James Jones. You know, by learning through them, um, you know, Brooklyn kind of was almost the equivalent to that where, you know, they came and they said, this is what you're doing. Kenny's talking about doing vitamins every day. You know, Sean has got the emphasis on performance side of stuff. You were working with a trainer that you were seeing on a daily basis. They're having you do various stuff in the weight room. And it was always like every day you're coming in, you knew exactly what you're going to be doing. You're going to have your vitamin on court. You're going to see your trainer um, or somebody from the performance staff. And then you're going to do your stuff in the weight room. And then you're going to go to practice. And then you're going to see somebody again after practice and it sort of just built up this sort of ritual that a lot of those guys when they were in cleveland had done independently in place you know and they'd had success with it over a long period of time but i think brooklyn allowed us to just kind of grab onto this structure really grow and develop a lot um you know obviously it helped having uh, a younger team where you know aside from all that stuff that's going on we're getting kind of thrown into the fire in a lot of these games too where you know, if I made a mistake in Cleveland, I'm probably getting taken out because, you know, it's, it's a championship team. They don't really have time to let me learn through mistakes. Whereas, you know, the 21 first-year team in Brooklyn, you know, we're learning through a lot of mistakes, uh, you know, messing up, but but figuring it out along the way. And Kenny allowed us a, a longer leash in that regard, but we all kind of really grew and sort of figured it out together.
0: Joe, the, the mental toughness that it takes to play in the NBA to come back from being a player again you're throwing essentially in a deal with salary and draft picks to Orlando they waive you the day you get traded and then you're trying to figure out where do I go next where can I solidify myself here this is a league of fighting confidence and fighting to keep your confidence and you didn't experience it as much cuz you didn't play as much in Cleveland with LeBron but you come here and you're playing with KD or Irving or James Harden and when they throw you the ball They've got to believe you're going to make a shot. They've got to believe they can count on you. And that's the job of being a role player on these teams. Do you have to build that over time? Do you have to fight to keep it every day? Or do you get to a point now where you go, I know what I am in this league. I've done it. You know, I've had a run here of time. I've gotten rewarded for it financially. Or does that always hang over you when you're playing with the uber elite great players?
1: Yeah, I think had you asked me that question, um, you know, maybe three, four years ago, it'd probably be a different response because I was still really trying to figure it out. You know, you're you're growing that sort of confidence, um, and I think now, like you mentioned, you know, I know, you know, what what exactly my role is, why I've had success in this league, why I've been rewarded in this league, and I really just stick to that. You know, it's not like I don't. It's not like I think I've I've reached my ceiling by any means or like that, but I know kind of. Uh, you know, I have the self-realization that, you know, I'm, I'm not a star player by any means, but my my job is to be the best role player in the NBA. or That's my goal. You know, that's what I think about. And even before, uh, you know, playing with, with James and Kai and Kevin, and then now it just makes it even easier because you need to have those valuable role players in order for the team to have success. And so you know, it's gotten to the point where I was already sort of trying to get in that mold before we, we brought on those guys. And I think, um, you know, I had built up the, the layer of confidence um, early on where it's allowed me to have success with them now.
0: Last thing, Joe, you've got a plane to catch here from San Antonio to Houston. How is Steve Nash, how is he growing in this job? How is he handled managing the locker room, dealing with from the star players to the role players and then, you know, growing tactically, like in the end of the day, Steve Nash is going to have to get into the playoffs into you know, against Eric Spolstra, against Mike Budenholzer, Nick Nurse, whoever it's going to be, Tom Thibodeau perhaps. And listen, he's going to have to draw. There's going to be big moments where you're going to look to your head coach who's a rookie head coach. How have you seen that growth with him so
1: far? Yeah, Steve has been unbelievable. Um, I think, for him, it's obviously a difficult job because you know so much of his job is trying to manage uh, everybody that we have on this team. Um, you know, especially in in the, the difficult times, it's a lot, quite a bit easier. You know, when you're winning games, doing well, but it's it's pretty trying and, and tough when you know you you lose back to back or you have a a one off game where you know it might just not be there. Um, and keeping everybody together. Um, you know that's been sort of the, the the biggest thing I've seen for him is that the way that he coaches us is like how I kind of feel like how he led his teams when he was in Phoenix, where everybody that ever played with him they would talk about how he was the ultimate teammate, the ultimate guy that just was the glue that kept everybody together, uh, consistently just positive, optimistic outlook, and that's how he is with us and. You know, I think a lot of us over the course of the season have really just sort of gravitated to that mindset and really have that belief in him. And I think him, along with the staff that he has, they collectively are able to, to handle the, the tactical side of stuff, um, the managerial side of stuff, because that stuff is not easy. You know, Steve has enough on his plate just trying to manage everybody. And then you add in the other fold of everything else that's going over the course of the game. But that's why we have great assistant coaches like Mike D'Antoni, Jacques Vaughn, um, Jordan Knott, you know, you name it, you go down the list. There's so many good coaches that we have. Emei Yudoka, like we have a gr- unbelievable staff that, that Steve leans on and, you know, he's not afraid to delegate. He's not the type of guy that's going to be, you know, micromanaging situations or anything like that. You know, he leans on all these guys and it's a collective effort. But at the end of the day, you know, he's the the leader that you want in this position because he is sort of the the epitome of what you want in emotional intelligence of keeping the group sort of collectively together and not letting it fracture, um, particularly in, in difficult times.
0: Joe, I know you got to get to the airport with the team. Uh, thanks for taking the time and enjoy what you do have of a all-star break. It is not very long, but it's <laughs> a long weekend anyway. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely taking advantage of it. All right. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it, watch. Hey, guys. Stephen A's World Streams weekdays on ESPN+, Plus, bringing fans Stephen A's entertaining perspective and deep expertise with signature guests. The best interviews from Stephen A's World are now available as a podcast every Wednesday. Uh, and of course, look out for baby Stephen A. You know baby Stephen A is my favorite. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and watch Stephen A's World on ESPN+. Plus. Welcome back into the Woj Pod. Here now with ESPN's NBA draft analyst, Mike Schmidt. Mike, how are you? I'm great, Woj. Thanks for having me, man. Of course, let's start with the 2020 NBA draft and the third pick in the draft, LaMelo Ball, who has all but sealed up rookie of the year and is looking every bit like a future all star, a franchise player in Charlotte. And listen, you have seen his evolution, having watched him a great deal back to his Chino High days with his older brother Lonzo to Lithuania, to Australia, and obviously now in Charlotte and you were very clear Mike before the draft that LaMelo Ball was the most talented player in this draft class and and there wasn't really necessarily uh, you weren't splitting hairs there. There wasn't a close second. He has shown that in the league has he been Mike even more dominant has he made the adjustment and, and become a player that you eventually thought he might be? a lot quicker.
2: No question. I thought there was going to be maybe a little bit more of a learning curve, um but like you said, he's been the runaway rookie of the year and he's been incredibly efficient too. You know, this is a guy who maybe struggled a little bit with efficiency in the past, but he's shooting over 50% from 2, 37% from 3, 80% from the free throw line and he's been far from You know, this out of control gunner that some people labeled him in the pre draft process. And it's been really cool to, you know, watch his evolution over the years. I was at some of those games uh, when he was playing with Lonzo at Chino Hills and he looked like a a 10 year old back then. And then I went out to uh, Lithuania to watch him play with Vitautis. And um, that was as strange of a development situation as I've ever seen. I mean, it was more or less for internet content than than basketball development. Uh, But then I checked in on him with his high school when he came back to the state's uh, Spire Institute, and he shot up to six foot six, six seven. His passing was transcendent, really. He was shooting the ball better. And I remember talking with um, you know our colleague and friend Jonathan Gavoni, and, and being like, man, this kid is a top ten talent in this draft. And, and then Jonathan, you know, went out to Tasmania and watched him play with Illawarra in a preseason tournament. And I remember him writing, you know, Lamelo Ball should be in consideration for the number one pick. And I remember people thought it was a joke. You know, they thought it was just for clicks, and, and for- <laughs> that's right. And, and they're questioning, you know, X, Y, and Z about about the whole thing. And the more you watched, the more you time you spent around him. Um, you know, I, I flew out there and spent about four or five days around him. We we sat down, we watched film. I was around the team, and you could just see his maturity starting to grow. You could see that you know teammates liked being around him, and. I remember one instance that kind of sold me on him—that that he was not just some highlight guy, but but he was a real player. And so they went to New Zealand and they got smacked by R.J. Hampton and the New Zealand Breakers. I mean, they got blown out. Um, his body language wasn't great. He wasn't trying defensively. And I went back uh, to and, and kind of followed them to Wollongong, Australia. And the coaches went at him in film, and they were questioning his shot selection. And so they had kind of a do-or-die game the next day at home, and he locked up completely. He's chasing guys around screens. He's sitting down in a stance. He's making everyone around him better, end up taking the game to overtime, almost had a triple-double. And it was at that point I knew... Like, this kid is not just a highlight machine. Um, Like, he's a real basketball player. He cares about winning. He cares about other people. And that's, I think, what's been most impressive about his time in Charlotte is just hearing his teammates and coaches just kind of rave about some of those intangible aspects.
0: That's right. I've talked to James Borrego about that and Gordon Hayward in Charlotte about that. And they talk about how much he loves to be in the gym. His disposition every day is sunny. Like he's laughing, he's smiling. Uh, This is a trying season for a lot of people in the league. Veterans are worn out by the protocols and and the containment on the road and at home. And there is something to be said. You talk to a lot of teams about having guys who come in the gym and are uplifting the group because there's a lot of days where guys are dragging in there. And especially as the point guard and having the ball in your hands, And I think those were some of the questions, Mike, about LaMelo Ball was, did he care about fitting into a team structure? All the teams you just listed, all the teams and places and situations he's been in before he got to the NBA, in many of the cases, he never finished a season with a team. And I think that's what he has shown so far, Mike, is an ability to translate a great individual talent into... Uh, team basketball, and a lot of nights this season winning basketball.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure it's been kind of a big sigh of relief for him to kind of unpack his bags and be in one place for the first time and know that he's going to be there, not just this season, but you know hopefully for years and years to come. And, and you're seeing that in his game. And yeah, from a talent perspective, I mean, you just don't find guys, you know, with his creativity, his passing, his ball handling. Um, And I think a lot of that is a testament to one playing against older guys his entire life. You know, he's always the the youngest guy in the gym playing with Lonzo, playing with a bunch of NBA players. Um, And then also, you know, playing that chaotic style in high school, they took a lot of heat for that because they didn't exactly implement high-level defensive principles, and we see that a little bit with him at times. But he's he's seen more possessions than any player, any 19-year-old his age because they've played at that pace. And so he's understood since he was very young, okay, this is my ball screen read here. This is what I'm looking for in transition. Like His processing speed and ability to think the game quickly is one of the best I've ever seen. Um, And so just to couple that with his maturity uh, has been really, really impressive to see. And this is a case that I've never really seen. I mean, we're almost evaluating like a a childhood movie star, if you really look at it And, and the success rate. Of guys, people like that just in life is not great. And and so the fact that um, this is a kid who's had the camera on him since he was so young, has lived in all these different places and played, you know, in all these different countries and is now settling into the NBA and bringing joy to that franchise and doing it while not even feeling an ounce of pressure. Like that's the thing that stands out most about this kid. He does not feel any pressure whatsoever. And he plays with that joy and that spirit. And I think all those things have created kind of this basketball savant that NBA fans are being introduced to this season.
0: Mike, draft night, he goes third to Charlotte behind Anthony Edwards, James Weissman, who, who go one and two. What do you remember about your conversations with teams in the top of the draft? Because there was all of a sudden this thought of, Well, how far might he slip? I think by the time we got to draft night, I think we were all pretty confident. Charlotte, he was not going past Charlotte. And I think Charlotte was pretty confident he would be there, that they didn't have to move up. They did think a lot about James Weissman and him, but I think they felt like it wasn't worth trading the assets because they felt pretty strongly about Ball. But what do you remember about the thought process of teams, what their concerns were, and what
2: they thought this guy was going to be? Yeah, it was kind of all over the map. Honestly, I, I don't think it was a situation where teams were, you know, hoping and praying that that he fell to them. And I think one of the main concerns or questions was if you bring Lamelo Ball into your franchise, you almost ha- have to hand him the keys. That was the thought, right? You have to turn over your franchise a little bit, like like Trey Young, you know, when when he came out. Like if you're going to bring him in, you have to say, all right, it's Lamelo Ball's franchise now. We're going to put pieces around him. And the question was, how good are you if you do that? And what surprised me about his transition to the NBA is how well he's fit in alongside other guys. I mean, he hasn't needed to be this ball dominant player whatsoever. I mean, he's some of their best lineups are when he's with, you know, Gordon Hayward, Terry Rozier, Devonte Graham, when he's healthy. Um, so I think he's already proven that that was maybe a little bit nitpicking on, you know, NBA teams part and in and, and our part to some degree, because I had those questions at times as well. But, you know, I think it it it's further proof that um, while all these players are coming out of all these different countries and all these different leagues and, and the league has expanded um, in so many ways, there's still a level of comfort in drafting somebody from the SEC or somebody from the Pac-12 or somebody that you've seen play in a league that you're familiar with in the NCAA right in front of you. Um, You know, we saw that to some degree with, with Luka Doncic, even though we knew, Hey, this is, we've never seen a prospect like this ever have this type of success and be so dominant in the Euro league. There was still a level of, well, you know, we've seen these guys in college right in front of us. We know what it looks like to go for 20 and 10 in the, in the pac 12, you know, we're going to opt with that. Right. And so, Um, I I think that the concerns about LaMelo kind of further prove that, um, you know, teams are still adjusting that lens a little bit in in finding ways to, uh, you know, understand what it means to put up X, Y and Z numbers in said league as opposed to, you know, how how that compares to to college production. But there were certainly questions about him on the on the floor. Um, How does he fit in off the floor? And, you know, so far this season, I think he's he's answered all those very emphatically.
0: Mike, and I think that brings us to this 2021 draft where that's gonna be part of the conversation again, evaluating players who are playing against different competition levels, one in college basketball, obviously one in Europe. And then there's a new there's a new genre here essentially. The Ignite team, the G League team that's playing in the G League bubble in Orlando, and two top five prospects there, Jalen Green. Jonathan Kaminga, who have been performing in front of NBA executives and and scouts, general managers, uh, have been in and out of there for the past month. Both Green and Kaminga have played really well. Both high school players who went that G League route got paid, you know, in the $500,000 range to skip college, be a part of this. And the feedback I've gotten from NBA GMs who've gone down there have loved That environment to evaluate them. Everything from watching them on an NBA court with the NBA three point line. And it's what you talked about with ball, having playing against older guys. And they're down there in the G League playing against veteran players, guys who've been in the NBA, guys who are in their 20s, in their 30s, who are legitimate professional basketball players defending them and playing with them. And both players have been outstanding. And in a year where protocol has impacted front office's ability to go out and be in gyms, watch practices and the college level, go into gyms and watch games, not a lot of GMs are traveling around the country watching games. I think if there was ever a year for Green and Kaminga to be a part of this G League bubble and, and this Ignite season, I think it's going to benefit these two guys.
2: No question. Uh, Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga are going to be seen more by presidents, general managers than any college prospect, you know, in this draft. And I think the G League, you got to tip your cap to them because uh, it was not easy. I mean, I I went up to watch them practice. I spent about three, four days up in Walnut Creek, um, you know, and there were days when, I mean, it it was difficult because you see, you know, all these players at at Gonzaga or at USC or at Oklahoma State having all this success and airtime on TV, but they did a tremendous job, one, organizing the bubble, and and then two, just – Making sure that executives, general managers, presidents were able to get down there and see them consecutive days in practice settings against really good players, and I think they, to some degree, have the upper hand um, over some of those college guys, just because you know it's difficult to take a player really high in the draft if your general manager or president, you know, hasn't seen them, and and that's been the case so far this season for a lot of guys, just because. Um, you know, presidents, GMs, they don't want to leave that kind of tier one status to go into a college gym. Um, And they don't want to have to, you know, pass six consecutive COVID tests to get back around their team. Whereas they could go down to the bubble and they could see their G League team. They could scout, um, you know, potential two-way guys. And then they could see four potential first round picks and not just Kaminga and Green, but then Dacian Nix and Isaiah Todd, who have both had their moments. But uh, Green and Kaminga, I'd be shocked if they're not both top five picks. Uh, they both bring something very different to the table. You know, Green is kind of in that Zach Levine mold. Um, he's a big time scorer, super effortless. Has great footwork, you know, can shoot it with range off the dribble. Um, One scout described him as having million-dollar legs uh, with with just his fluidity, his explosiveness. He's getting tougher defensively. Uh, And then Kaminga is maybe the most physically impressive prospect in the draft. You know, when you talk about 6'8", great frame, great footwork, powerful, explosive, kind of like a bigger... Jalen Brown. Um, so, you know, it, it was difficult for scouts to get out to Australia and, and, and watch LaMelo ball. And, you know, this level, they don't, they know the NBL, but okay, how good is it? And, you know, he's, they're playing with, he's playing with Josh Boone and, and some guys who had their run, but when they're able to see guys like Kaminga and Green against guys who were first round picks in this last year's draft, guys who are NBA veterans, you know, whether it's Jeremy Lin, um, all these names, it's much easier to put that into context. And, and that's why I think it's been a huge benefit, you know, for Kaminga and Green. And I think that's what the NBA wanted. You know, they didn't want these guys who weren't gonna go to college to have to go all the way across the world to be seen. Um, so I think so far, this Ignite pro- program has been a huge success.
0: If LaMelo Ball had this opportunity and was playing in a G-League bubble leading up to his draft and getting the exposure to NBA executives that Green and Kaminga are. Is there any question he goes number one in the draft?
2: Zero question. And and, and I made that point about college. Um, You know, I said if LaMelo Ball was at, you know, Duke or Kentucky or, or whatever college program you want to say, that he would have gone number one. And then, you know, the response was, well, what if you know this college player was in a different situation, or or James Wiseman played a full season, or whatever? And my point was more so, just getting eyeballs on you in a in a familiar context really still holds value in when it's on your own soil here in the United States against players you're familiar with. You know, there's a level of comfort that executives feel with that. And I think if Lomelo was running up and down in this G League bubble, um, it'd be a wrap. I, I think it would have been over. Mike Schmitz, ESPN's NBA draft analyst.
0: Mike, always great to have you in here. I know we'll be talking a lot more between now and this summer's NBA draft. What is the NBA draft? I think we think it's going to be, Mike, let's see, the season ends mid-July. So probably late July, right? That's probably about when it's, it's going to
2: fall. Yeah, late July. Yep. So we'll have, you know, conference tournaments coming up here, March Madness, and then we'll see what the pre-draft process looks like this time around. But we're going to have, just like last year, a little bit more time to, to study these guys and, you know, hopefully get it right. Mike, always great to have you in here. We'll Talk to you soon. Appreciate it, Woj.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today, Brooklyn Nets guard Joe Harris and ESPN's NBA draft analyst, Mike Schmitz. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure also to listen to The Low Post with Zach Lowe and The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst. We'll catch you next time.